Hello and thanks for joining us from our studios in Tel Aviv. Coming up in today's newscast, another Israeli soldier is critically wounded in a terror attack. An unusual love story is about to have a big impact on Israeli athletics and we'll reveal which NBA star will start playing for Israel. I'm Natasha Kirchuk here with the latest news in the Holy Land. An Israeli soldier is in serious condition after she was stabbed by a pair of attackers near the West Bank settlement of Ariel, and her assailants have reportedly been neutralized. Magin Davida Dome paramedics say they're treating the woman for stab wounds to her upper body, and that she was found lying on the sidewalk when they arrived at the scene. The attack took place at a bus stop outside of the Ariel settlement, which is just south of Nablus. Police say that both attackers were neutralized, and initial reports indicate they died at the scene. Their victim is apparently in her 20s and she's now being treated in the Belenson Hospital in Petah Tikva for her injuries. The mayor of the Ariel settlement is calling for Israel to take action against the ongoing terror in the West Bank. I Joining us live via telephone is Professor Mikhail Drescher, the Chief of Emergency Medicine at Rabin Medical Center in Petah Tikva. Professor, can you give us an update on the condition of the soldier from this morning's terror attack? Well, this young soldier was brought into our emergency department at the Billington Hospital, uh, where she was treated in the uh, trauma room for stab wounds to the upper part of her body. Some emergency procedures were performed in the uh, trauma room after which she was taken for some initial imaging studies and was found to have injuries that required uh, her to have emergency surgery to explore uh, some of the wounds. Uh, she was after that taken while she was still uh, sedated and intubated to further testing. And uh, right now it seems that she's not in any danger. However, she is still um, under strict observation. And uh, although she's making good progress, uh, we are still keeping a close eye on things. It's great to hear that she, she's going to be okay. Thank you so much for your time. You couldn't be more welcome. Good evening. The U.S. President Barack Obama has finally announced his Supreme Court nomination, and it happens to be a Jewish judge who is very proud of his heritage. I've selected a nominee who is widely recognized not only as one of America's sharpest legal minds, but someone who brings to his work a spirit of decency, modesty, integrity, even-handedness, and excellence. These qualities and his long commitment to public service have earned him the respect and admiration of leaders from both sides of the aisle. He will ultimately bring that same character to bear on the Supreme Court, an institution in which he is uniquely prepared to serve immediately. Today I am nominating Chief Judge Merrick Brian Garland to join the Supreme Court. Merrick Garland is currently serving as a Chief Judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, and it looks like he might be moving over to the Supreme Court. Garland's also Jewish and he says his grandparents fled anti-Semitism in Russia, looking for a better life in America. 
Garland credits his Jewish grandparents with putting him in a place to be nominated and got emotional while talking about his family and accepting his nomination in the White House Rose Garden yesterday. Thank you, Mr. President. This is the greatest honor of my life. Other than Lynn agreeing to marry me 28 years ago. It's also the greatest gift I've ever received, except, and there's another caveat, the birth of our daughters, Jesse and Becky. It looks like he certainly has made a better life for himself. Garland has served on the U.S. Court of Appeals since 1997 and became a chief judge in 2013. President Obama is asking the Republicans in the Senate to give Garland a fair hearing, even though he's a Democrat. Tomorrow, Judge Garland will travel to the Hill to begin meeting with senators one-on-one. -on -one. I simply ask Republicans in the Senate to give him a fair hearing and then an up or down vote. If you don't, then it will not only be an abdication of the Senate's constitutional duty, it will indicate a process for nominating and confirming judges that is beyond repair. It will mean everything is subject to the most partisan of politics, everything. The reputation of the Supreme Court will inevitably suffer. Faith in our justice system will inevitably suffer. And our democracy will ultimately suffer as well. If Garland's nomination is approved, he'll become the fourth current Jewish judge on the U.S. Supreme Court, joining Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Alina Kagan, and Stephen Breyer. And it certainly looks like Garland can't wait to become a Supreme Justice. Fidelity to the Constitution and the law has been the cornerstone of my professional life. And it is the hallmark of the kind of judge I have tried to be for the past 18 years. If the Senate sees fit to confirm me to the position for which I have been nominated today, I promise to continue on that course. What would you do if your father's murderer was being treated in the hospital just meters away from you? For most people around the world, October 13, 2015 was just an ordinary day. But for Mike Alakin Avni, it was one of the worst days of his life. His father Richard was seriously wounded in a terror attack in Jerusalem and he passed away just a few days later in a hospital bed near one of his attackers. Yet Micah just isn't blaming his father's assailants for the murder. He's now going after Facebook for failing to curb online incitement. Micah is here in the studio with us today to tell us more. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me, Natasha. So can you first tell us a little bit about your father? You know, my father, uh, he was a kind, gentle person. He, he was an educator, an elementary school principal, a grandfather of six. Uh, he dedicated his life to uh, education of children and to coexistence. Uh, in the United States, before we moved to Israel, um, at, in his student days, he marched with uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Uh, he was a leader in school integration as an elementary school principal, integrating a suburban elementary school. Uh, he set up an integrated summer camp. Uh, and in the mid-'80s, our family moved to Israel. Um, and he became very involved um, in coexistence. Uh, he was a humanist uh, at his core. Um, he, he and my mother set up an English language as a second English as a second language school uh, with Jewish, Christian, and Muslim students. Um, and, and he was just a good, kind-hearted person. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, this tragic event happened. What do you remember from the day that your father was attacked? 
You know, it, it really was, it was, the, it was the most horrific day of my life. Um, I was sitting in a meeting in Tel Aviv, uh, and I got a phone call from my mother. She said, uh, there's been this attack in Jerusalem, and I think your father was in the area, and I've been calling him for 10 minutes, and he hasn't answered the phone. Um, and I knew immediately. I was in a meeting with 15 people, and I just stepped up and walked out and got in the car to Jerusalem, started calling the hospitals on the way. Um, my, my father was the kind of person who was very neurotic. Anytime there would be a terror attack anywhere in the world, he would immediately call to let us know that everything was okay. Um, and, you know, on, on my drive from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, I found out that he was in uh, Hadassah Hospital. And I drove there, um, and uh, it was horrible. We arrived. He had been uh, shot in the head. Um, after falling to the ground, uh, he was stabbed multiple, multiple times by the terrorists in the head, in the face, in the stomach. Uh, all of his internal organs were severed. Um, I, I was met at the hospital by uh, an Arab nurse whose uh, children were both students of my father's. And she was crying. She said, I was at his house a week ago. Uh, and she told me about the situation. Um, he spent two weeks in intensive care in the hospital. Uh, during those two weeks, he was unconscious the entire time. The medical staff there was incredible, Jewish and Arab doctors working together trying to save him. Um, you know, and our whole family spent two weeks uh, beside his bed, holding his hand. Um, so, you know, I wanted to ask you about that experience because I actually understand that in the hospital, your father was being treated just meters away from one of his attackers. What was that experience like to know that the person who injured him was there in the same hospital? It, you know, um, it, it was horrible. I mean, it was probably the most terrible emotional uh, uh, experience a person could imagine. I stood there holding my father's hand and I... And I watched uh, his attacker regain consciousness. Um, I'm proud to live in a country where, uh, you know, we treat everybody equally. And when medical staff reach the scene, they don't know who's an attacker, who's a victim. And even if they do, they, they, they brought everybody to the hospital, gave everybody treatment. Then, um, you know, our system and our hospitals saved his life, that attacker. And that was horrible for me to watch as, as an individual. But I'm glad that that's the way that our country behaves. And I'm, I'm proud of that. Um, and he'll be tried in a court of law here and, you know, spend the rest of his life in prison, which he should. Um, Social media played a large part in this attack, especially because of the online incitement prior to it. And, you know, now you're actually going after that incitement. What can you tell us about your plan to stop online social media incitement? Well, I'll tell you, you know, while we sat next to my father in the hospital during those two weeks, we, we had a lot of time to think and try to analyze what was going on. And, and I... And I asked myself over and over again, how, how could it be? How, how could somebody just get on a bus and start shooting innocent retirees in the head and stabbing them? And when the knife broke, they started strangling some of the people. I mean, it's just horrific, brutal behavior. What, what could bring two 20-year-olds to do something like this? Um, and I started researching and, and looking at the spread of terror. And I mean, if you, if you go to, say, Wikipedia and you type in the words Islamic terror attacks, what you'll see over the past 20 years is an almost exponential increase of terror and spread around the world. It's not just here in Israel, it's, it's everywhere. Uh, and, and terror needs motivation. People don't, don't just get up in the morning and say, I'm going to go stab somebody or shoot them. They, they, they have to be motivated and incited to do that. And I started researching this online. And, uh, you know, this was, this was already five months ago almost. And, and I found thousands and thousands and thousands of videos and Facebook posts and, and YouTube videos. Uh, inciting children, inciting teenagers, inciting people to go out and stab Jews, to go out and attack Westerners. And, and that's just in English. And then I started researching what goes on in Arabic and, you know, with the help of people who speak Arabic and translators. And it was just mind-boggling. It was just a, a free-for-all of incitement. Um, and you see that, you know, a kid sits at home and all day long watches this. And, and at a certain point, that affects their mind. 
Um, and then I got to think about how do we stop this because it's really getting out of control. I mean, until somebody is personally impacted like we were, you don't fully understand the gravity of uh, what's going on. And, and I hope that most people never will. But if you look at the numbers, the growth of, of terror is almost exponential. It's mind boggling. Um, and, and, and all of this is facilitated by social media. It's Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and similar social media companies that allow people to sit at home uh, and without having to take any responsibility, post movies, post uh, 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 documents, whatever they want, insightful materials, uh, telling people to go out and kill. It, just in the, in the case of my father, um, one of the terrorists uh, put up a, a Facebook post before he went out and did the act calling on people to become martyrs and go out and kill Jews. Uh, he then, a after uh, murdering my father, the next day uh, a Facebook uh, page went up for this terrorist uh, glorifying what he did. Tens of videos about the act started appearing on the internet. The Hamas student union put up a reenactment of the bus attack two days later, which went completely uh, viral. And, and this just goes on and on. And I realized that in, if we can't stop this incitement, if we, if we can't slow it down, then the terror is just going to continue to increase. You filed a lawsuit against Facebook. What do you hope the outcome of the lawsuit will be? Okay, so, so what we saw is that basically Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter are the facilitators of this incitement. Without them, people couldn't get this crazy message across to millions of In people. In other words, and they're the platform that people can upload these videos and this insightful content Exactly, to. exactly. But, but they take no responsibility for what's being published on their platform. Uh, and so what we're calling for, what we're demanding, and I, and I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times in November, and, and I've been talking about this and writing about it a lot over the past few months, uh, is that these companies need to take responsibility to self-regulate. They need to proactively monitor the things that are being posted. Obviously, there's issues of free speech, and I'm in no way saying we should curtail free speech, but when somebody says to a child uh, in a children's program, which is being posted on YouTube, go out, take a sword or take a knife and stab Jewish people in the street just because they're Jewish and go out and kill them. And here's instructions about how to do it. I mean, I found horrific instructional videos of how to cut people open and where the best places to stab are. Just terrible stuff that, that shouldn't be there. And, and I'm calling on these companies to take responsibility uh, to basically monitor that on their own. So we're doing that in a couple ways. We filed a lawsuit against Facebook. Uh, I, I'm aware that there's a widow of an American soldier who was killed by terrorists in Jordan who's filed a lawsuit against Twitter. Um, I know there are other lawsuits uh, on their way, that this will hopefully put some pressure on them. We're, we're asking for an order for Facebook to proactively monitor what's going on. We're not looking for any kind of damages or anything like that, but just for them to behave properly and ethically. Um, I've been lobbying regulators in Israel and the United States uh, to initiate regulation that would force these companies uh, to behave ethically if they're not able to go out and do it on their own. What do you think your father would say if he heard about this lawsuit that you were filing, the work you were doing against social media incitement? You know, you know, I'm sure my father uh, would be proud, and it's something that he would be in, involved in uh, uh, himself if, if uh, he were still with us today, uh, because he, he believed that the best way to influence people was uh, through love, through understanding, respect, appreciation, and that, that's what he taught children. That's what he wrote about in his, in his book um, about education. But he also taught me as a child, if, if you don't have something uh, positive to say, then just don't say it. And I mean, this is the extreme example of that, this incitement. It's something that needs to be stopped. It, it's not uh, acceptable by any moral standard. A and what people can do is go out and they can petition. They can talk about this. They can write to their legislators about it. They can write in papers about it. And, and they can demand that these uh, social media companies, who are run by good, decent people, but at the end of the day, they're businesses that are just looking at their bottom line. They can demand that they begin to uh, act ethically 
uh, and regulate the kind of materials that are posted. Well, thank you so much for coming in. It's, it's really wonderful to see the work that you're doing. And hopefully everybody remembers uh, your father and, and, and the great work that he did. He sounds like an incredible man. And again, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. If you've ever thought about going organic, you probably know how many farmers use pesticides and how hard it can be to find healthy produce. Well, when Israeli tech company has a solution for getting rid of pests without using chemicals. So it looks like you can start feeling safer about your meals. The Israeli agritech company BioBee has come up with a healthy solution to the lethal pesticides used by most farmers by using bugs to eat other bugs. The company genetically breeds insects that would naturally prey on common pests and make sure they only go after the bugs and not farmers' plants. For example, BioBee sells spiders that leave plants alone but eat moths, mites, and other pests that might try to eat up crops. And the company's got a proven track record of success. Last year, it sent 600 million large spider mites to Colombia to help farmers get rid of the smaller spider mites that were eating away their coffee crop. Think that's impressive? BioBee also sent millions of sterile fruit flies to Croatia to mate with fruit flies that were destroying the country's citrus crop. The female fruit flies mated with the sterile bugs BioBee sent. And in the end, the entire problem was solved in a few weeks when the flies died off and didn't have offspring to replace them. BioBee is now bringing its technology to the common Israeli farmer, and its bugs will be available to purchase in stores all over the country. The company says the bugs aren't harmful to humans, animals, or plants, just pests. It looks like they've really come up with a solution to harmful chemicals. Israeli basketball is about to get a lot more interesting because an American three-time NBA slam dunk champion is set to play for Tel Aviv. Basketball star Nate Robinson has agreed to play for Apoel Tel Aviv, and Israelis are welcoming the champ with open arms. Basketball is mostly a game for tall players, but at 5 foot 9 inches, the relatively normal-sized Robinson knows how to soar. The 31-year-old former player for the New Orleans Pelicans has agreed to play for Hapoel Tel Aviv. Robinson was dropped from the NBA in October after playing for six teams and averaging 11 points and three assists per game. Last week, he released a video saying he was on a mission to join the NFL, but now it looks like he's headed to Israel. Robinson's football dreams apparently aren't over, though. He's also expressed an interest in playing football in Israel. He could be a great addition because Israel's national football team has become more successful in the last year and is beginning to gain lots of national publicity. An unusual love story is about to have an impressive impact on Israeli athletics. It looks like a Kenyan-born marathon runner will be representing Israel this summer in the Rio Olympics. And her road to success has been an inspiration to Israelis around the country. Lona Chemtai may originally be from Kenya, but now she calls Israel home. The marathon runner is happily married to an Israeli and now resides in Tel Aviv with their baby boy. And late last month, she went on a life-changing run. Chimtai ran the Tel Aviv Marathon in 2 hours, 40 minutes, and 16 seconds, more than fast enough to qualify for the Olympics. Her speedy run led to lots of publicity, and tons of Israelis got to learn about her achievement and unusual love story. The countrywide support led Lona on a mission to obtain Israeli citizenship in time to qualify for Israel's Olympic team. Now in just two weeks, Lona has received approval from the country's Olympic committee, and it looks like she'll become the 19th athlete in the Israeli delegation to Rio. Today, Lona and her family will go to the Interior Ministry office to pick up her new ID card. And she says she can't wait to finally represent Israel as a true local. And now for our Hebrew word of the day. 
We're so excited that so many athletic champions are set to represent Israel. So today's word is aluf, which means champion in Hebrew. This special word has a lot of history, and in biblical times it was used to refer to a chief or the head of a tribe. Now aluf is generally used to talk about champions in the military and the sports world. In fact, the major general, which is the highest ranking in the Israeli army, is called Rav Aluf in Hebrew. But don't worry, you don't have to be a military star to be an Aluf. After all, Israelis are positive that they're all champions in their own special way. If you really want to make an Israeli feel good, all you have to say is, Eze Alufata, or what a champion you are. Just be careful how much you throw around the word, because you don't want your Israeli friends to have to go to the hospital if their egos explode. Let's go ahead and take a look at the weather forecast. The weekend is finally here. Tomorrow is expected to be partly cloudy with a high of 64 degrees. The clouds will stay out through Saturday, but the weather should get even warmer with a high of 75. So it looks like it'll be a great day to take a long walk outside. All right, everybody, that's it for today's news. Today's exchange rate is 3.85 shekels to the American dollar. Remember to sign up for our daily newsletter at ILTV.TV and don't forget to check out our evening update every night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching and we'll see you tonight.